1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online. So the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise for you, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the King Cast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Uh, today's guests are, if I may be so bold, quintuple threats. Eric, have we had quintuple threats on the show before? I think uh, no, we haven't even had uh, quintuplets on the show before. So that's true. We've been trying for that, but I think the the Zencaster room can only hold so many people, <laughs> yes. and that might be a problem. But uh, yeah, today we are talking to two writers, producers, podcasters iconic drag artists and of course hosts of a very popular reality competition series produced by our dear friends over at Shedder, the Belay Brothers Dragula. Today they're here to talk to us about Malachi and the boys. That's right, we are going back to Children of the Corn. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Belay Brothers Drac and Swan to the KingCast stage. Ladies, how are y'all doing today? We are doing great. Thank you for having us. Yes, oh, excellent. We are, we are delighted. Y'all are y'all are sort of intimidating to talk to. I think uh-huh. you know That's you are true. you are you are larger <laughs> than life. You are truly iconic. Go on, go on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking the way this is going so far. I'm doing really oh, well. This is fantastic. <laughs> my under, my understanding of y'all's situation is that you went from Queens to L.A. and basically just took over. Like, is that about accurate? Well, we we did sort of come up in the in the New York club scene back in the day, and uh, yeah, we moved to Los Angeles and just sort of started creating content. You know, it's uh, we started making magazines and comic books and nightclub events and all sorts of things, and that uh, turned into television. And here we are, comic books. I didn't have that in there, so you're actually a sextuple threat. Yes. <laughs> Good lord. He, he set you up. I, I'm not I'm not uh, sure why he didn't spike that ball there. I'm a little <laughs> little disappointed, Boulez. <laughs> yeah, we actually uh used to do comic books together when we met, and then we sort of took a break on it for a long time. And then recently we just did a like uh takeover of the heavy metal comic magazine mm. and we wrote a bunch of oh, man. Uh, stories for that, and we worked with a partner of ours and brought in a bunch of artists. It was really cool. And it yeah, sold it out. So I was happy. really fun. Yeah. For their Halloween issue. It was awesome. We have a dear friend here at the King cast by the name of Phil Nobile jr. He is the editor in chief over at Fangoria magazine. And he appeared on your, the latest season of your show, season yes. four of the Boulay brothers, Dragula full title there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> how much time did y'all actually get to, to spend with Phil? 
Like, do you know Phil pretty well? We do or? know Phil. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say we did. Like the day that he was there for the shoot, I mean, it was pretty much the the full extent of the day, but we've actually shot a couple of different projects with Phil, right, Track? Um, yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, Behind the Monsters, we were commentators on, and he was a producer on that. There was another, I think he was at, at the Queer Horror Doc that they're working on for mm-hmm. Shudder. The original filming of it, which I think I don't even know if that exists anymore. But anyways, he was part of that too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we've we've kind of know. And actually, when we started our podcast, it originated as a Fangoria podcast that we launched with Phil. So, mm-hmm. there, yeah, and then uh, that went to shit pretty quickly after. <laughs> we all know what happened. There. Sure yes. did. Yeah, but Phil was a great judge, too. I just kind of want to throw that out there. And I've told him on the side, like separately, uh, not to inflate his ego by any means. But, you know, some people can can sit in the judges uh, booth with us and be a little intimidated or maybe clam up. But I thought Phil, not having come from like a drag space or even like a judging background for you know in any way really kind of brought forward like some sage commentary really kept it on task was really involved in the process. It was just, you know, a good experience, I think, for everyone across the board. He was so psyched to do that. He was just like a kid in a candy store. Um, he was great. And honestly, yeah, I, I feel like I have a lot of respect for what he's done with Fangoria and his influence over it, you know, because I think he's right. for sure. really worked to make it very diverse in a non like virtue signaling kind of way, which is sometimes difficult to do, right? Because he himself isn't a minority, but he he's somehow find a way to give platform and voice to a lot of different people in a non-self-serving way, which I appreciate. Well, yeah, and and I know he's caught in some flack for that from some of the more, say, alt-right fans say in the horror space. fifty-year-old uh, yeah. fans uh, of the magazine. But, which, I mean, the thing is, is that horror and Fangoria, like, going back has all been about the outcast. I mean, that's what everybody who grew up in the, you know, the 80s, my era, 70s and 80s, loving horror, you know, it, it, that wasn't the mainstream, even though... Yeah, it, it wasn't considered mainstream, even though it, it absolutely was. The the Freddy and Jason movies were making, you know, more money than all the prestige dramas and all that. So mm-hmm. it was popular, but it was still kind of viewed as weird, you know, by society as a whole. So I mean horror in general is all about embracing the outcast and 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 the people who don't have a voice and that are shunned, mm-hmm. you know, feel shunned. So like it's the most natural thing in the world for me, you know, in, in my point of view and i'm a proud fango subscriber before our podcast even you know landed with them and i've kept it up you know uh, it for it's the most natural thing in the world for for phil to kind of steer the ship the way he has i agree but it's it's you know not everyone would take that opportunity you know at least that's right. my experience so oh, i think that's it's, true it's, yeah true. it's cool that he's done it and you know there is a weird part of horror fandom that had that sort of conservative hyper conservative i would say right like from from back in the day like i remember when i started reading fangoria you know back in the 80s like it it, you know the the horror community was not always so embracing of other people right like Mm -hmm. it it wasn't and and i seen that transforms it it was a huge thing for us to be on the cover of fangoria because i remember like i said reading it when i was a kid and then sort of knowing that some of the community was maybe homophobic or you know had elements of that and then being on the going to being on the cover of it like in october that was like a huge full circle moment for us and it made me see how far everything has come and Drac, how well did that uh, did that issue of Fangoria sell? Actually, it sold out. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was like in record breaking time. No, it was just you know it was just such a cool kind of special opportunity for us. And 
when it comes to like kind of making space for ourselves and for like marginalized people and like queer people and just underrepresented people, we kind of have this very like kind of like punk approach, which is like, we're not asking permission. Like we're here, we've been here the entire time. It's like, if and if you're not happy with that, you're the one that's going to leave, not us. I right. see too. Like I'm like everyone, like you said, you know, horror is made up of a misfit community, right? Yeah. Like we're all mm-hmm. freaks and weirdos that don't fit in. And we love this stuff that honestly, until recently was shunned itself, right? Like horror wasn't taken seriously for so long. And so it's odd to think to split hairs within that kind of, you're already in a niche, you know what I mean? And I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I'd like to also underline that I'm not looking back on the the 80s with rose-colored glasses. You read any of those uh, mailbag sections of Fangoria from the early 80s, read how the fans re- responded to John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, you you it wasn't just uh, the box office that was kind of muted compared to its reputation now. Like, you read people's response to The Shining, you know, Kubrick's The Shining. It's like there, there was a lot of uh, gatekeeping going on back then but i i don't know it's still again the most natural thing in the world like we're all in this together it's like this is where we have the same passions and 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 loves you know we just express it differently you know Mm -hmm. i guess so and i think it's important like for us we just sort of it's not about our identity. Like we are the Blade brothers. We're these characters wherever we go. And we just mm-hmm. show up at these horror conventions or wherever and make space for ourselves. And usually people, you know, we mm-hmm. just click with people and, and we get on and it's, it's not a thing. You know, I think it's more about just like not shoving everything down people's throats and just existing and figuring out how to coexist. And that seems to work for us. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing that any fandom seems to go through. Right. I feel like, I feel like we've seen this with, comic books and star Wars mm-hmm. over the last few years as well, where it's like, well, this used to be like a hyper nerdy thing, uh-huh. you know, it was very popular, but like the people that were like sort of the keepers of the knowledge of it were a very tight knit group. And now like mm-hmm. as the fandoms, these things get bigger and bigger and generate more money, bigger crowds come into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to attract fans that don't look like you. Or, you know, coming from a different background and all that shit. And so there's like this this sort of panic that takes place among certain certain members of fandoms where it's like, well, wait a second. Like, I love this, but now you're telling me like gay folks are into this now? Like, oh, hold right. on. What's going on? Like, yeah, of course they are. Fucking, right. We're, we're all people at the end of the day and cool shit is cool shit, you know? Absolutely. So, so yeah, the, yeah, the the genre that's like famously been extremely progressive and female driven, you know, <laughs> when that wasn't a thing and, and all this, it's like, yeah, it, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. It's all I'm saying. Nah. Well, the thing about, you know, uh, the thing about horror too is horror is so queer at its origins. If you really mm. look at it, you know, and a lot of people that they, they miss that. But if you really look at those things and you look at like, you know, James Wales movies, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and kind of like he was openly gay and, and the content that he was making, you think, like Frankenstein or the Bride of Frankenstein or anything is about the wow. How about it? it's these misfit characters that society doesn't trust and chases right. them down with torches? You know what I mean? Like it's not you, <laughs> you can see the parallels pretty obviously. Now you're here to talk to us today about uh, Stephen King, but there's another horror author I, I, I'd like to talk to you about very briefly, who I understand you're friendly with and you've worked with on a number of occasions, and that's uh, Clive Barker. I'm I'm curious how you. Uh, y'all came to know one another and uh, how he's doing these days. Um, 
our paths crossed and that our friendship is rooted kind of in the clubs and the nightlife spaces that we used to create here in Los Angeles. I think that's where we really broke ground when Drac and I moved to LA. We kind of looked around and said like, oh God, there's nothing really here nightlife wise that really uh, checks the boxes for us. So instead of like moving or crying about it, we basically just created our own <laughs> nightlife events. And um, that was a long time ago. And now since then, yeah. we've we do like the Los Angeles Halloween ball we have for like 20 years, we do huge New Year's Eve events and stuff. But we used to do um, kind of like this pansexual fetish party, where it was like anything goes like everyone was invited, gay, straight, non binary, even before that term was really like a thing, like it was just a celebration of being like irreverent and really extroverted. And, um, you know, Clive was sort of attracted to that energy surprise. Um, <laughs> you know, we had a mutual friend and we wanted we, we would love the idea of Clive being a guest for one of our Halloween balls. And we were able to manifest that where he came in and, you know, he judged the, the costume contest. And it was just such a moment <laughs> to have someone like so iconic from the horror space, like be there partying with us. It was like, you know, such a great memory. Yeah. And Did he hosted Oh, Sorry, did people go extra hard when they knew that Clark, Clive Barker was uh, <laughs> was one of the ghosts or ghosts, <clears throat> one of the, the guest judges? It's like always it, some. Yeah. It's always like like at our Halloween ball. There's always like a host character, like Elvira's been there, Clive oh, Barker's wow. been there. Like it's it's everyone sort of. It's always a big surprise who's going to be there. But Clive actually did, I believe, for like four or five years in a row straight. Yeah, several so, times, and yeah. and you know people always go hard for our event because it's very like colorful and you know dressing up is like totally part and parcel of the whole experience so I, I don't know if they went harder but hmm. i always kind of get a snicker and i look across the crowd and drac and eyes you know when our eyes kind of like lock because we know we throw a killer halloween ball so <laughs> right. it's clive sitting there in the throne like kind of judging people yes you stay no you go i mean that was just kind of like the the icing on the cake i understand that he was in poor health for a while but is is doing much better these days is that true I think he's doing better now. I know he, he, uh, I can't remember what it was. I heard he was shooting like a, as a commentator for a documentary coming out. So, um, yeah, I think he's doing better. I don't, I don't personally know. I haven't seen him in a, in a while, but, um, yeah, I believe he's doing better. Yeah. Yeah. We right actually, yeah it, it was great to hear. We went to see him once in his house in the Hills and like, what a crazy experience because there were just literal artifacts, from movies that you know, and this huge room where there was just, you know, kind of if you go into uh, a store where you're like buying furniture and carpets where they have like the huge carpets, almost like on a rack, like giant, like 10 by 15, <laughs> 20 right. foot carpet. But these were all like original paintings. So we saw like painting after painting um, from all of his literary worlds, like the Hellraisers and, and Magicka and like all the things that he's done. It was like really, really special. Wow. wow. That's incredible. Yeah, he, he's uh, definitely somebody that is on our dream list to get on, on the show, you know, cause uh, just to go back to the Stephen King connection, it's really interesting because he got the stamp of approval from, from King at a really crucial time. And I'll never forget it. Like even as a kid, like I, I came to Clive Barker because I, uh, mm -hmm. I knew Stephen King and it was Stephen King, uh, calling him the future of horror. He's like, I've seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. Wow. And, and, uh, and that's always stuck with me. And, and uh, no, so I'm, I'd be fascinated. I've interviewed him once or twice, like just as my, through my career as a film blogger. Um, and I've, he's always fascinating. Uh, but yeah, we, I wonder what his, you know, his input on King would be. And, you know, considering how personally he got, you know, kind of blessed by the guy. Yeah. I think absolutely. that blurb was on the damnation game. Which was also the first Clive Barker book I tried to read, and I was like thirteen. 
<laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. what is, is going on with this? <laughs> like, yeah. like, holy shit. Because <laughs> um, I'd only read like, uh, like the adult horror I'd read to that point was all King. You know, and King mm. is King is a lot of things, but he is not necessarily as uh, inherently horny as Clive Barker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so he, he's it was horny just, in a much more like stepdad kind of way, though. It's like, oh, yeah, good, King's like yeah. King's like kind of like leave it to beaver horny. Yeah. <laughs> right. And Clive's like Clive's back there in the shadows, though. Dude. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's like fetish party horny. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Underground London party horny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't talk about it the next day, horny. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but on the subject of King, uh, I, uh, a question we ask all of our guests is what their Stephen King origin story is, which is to say, like, when did when did he first come onto y'all's radar as uh, like, a, like a presence in pop culture? I guess I'll I'll ask you individually, whoever wants to start first. I think for me, I I think I picked up Pet Cemetery first at the library uh, when I was a kid, and I just fell in love with it. It, it was it just sucked me in immediately. It was very easy to read, and you know, one thing led to another, and then I was I was reading you know a lot of his books. But yeah, it was I was a I don't know. I mean, it must have been probably before I was a teenager. Um, yeah. And I and that was kind of what sucked me in. And then they made the Pet Cemetery movie, which I was like, okay, here's my first experience at reading a book and loving it. Maybe not loving the movie as much as the mm. book. <laughs> yeah, get used to that in this. Yeah, case. I know. Oh. Well, that was I was like, oh wow, you know. And then I was like, oh. Well, the book was so much better. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. totally. Children of the Corn is definitely no exception, too. Was, right. <laughs> after reading it, I was like, wow, I did a rewatch of the movie. And I'm like, now, wait a minute. Now, just, <laughs> now just wait one damn minute. <laughs> it, it went crazy. Um, yeah, the book mm-hmm. is so much darker. I, I think for me, I, I can't remember what I saw first. It was either going to it's either going to be Creep Show and that's specifically the one where he's actually the actor where the meteorite hits and like all, all the green growth goes all over him. I yeah. remember, I remember that kind of like searing into my mind when I was a little kid or Firestarter, which was where, you know, pyrokinesis and like, you know, the, the daughter, like the scientific experiments and all that kind of stuff just kind of like lit my imagination on fire when I was a child and it like literally and figuratively. And it just kind of went from there. Have you kept up with them over the years? Like, do you still, you know, read King? Or are you more selective now? Or, or I, honestly, it's hard to find time to read. As much as I'm embarrassed to say that it's true, <laughs> like the last couple of years, it's been very hard. We've we tried to kind of add a um, like a book reading club to our podcast to, to so it would force us to carve out time to read. You know, literally, and it was successful. But yeah, we have not. Re- I have not read any Stephen King in a while. No, I I mean, yeah, honestly, for me, I've only really tried to read one book. Like I've read some of the short stories in Night Shift, but I tried to pick up uh, the stand as like my first Stephen King book. And I've told this story. <laughs> Jumping yeah, in the deep I, end. Yeah. I couldn't do it. And and I, I, I started and stopped that book. I mean, I don't even know how many times, like half a dozen times in like junior high. And I just gave up. I, I think to this day, I've never really read like an entire novel, even though I know like all the movies. It's like yeah. a thousand pages long. Yeah, it was so yeah. hard. It's a big one. <laughs> like you're not, you're not getting through that one easy. I tried to read it when I was a kid, and it was, it was kind of a slog. Hmm. Uh, works better now, but yeah, definitely. I had the exact opposite reaction. Like I love the the like Needful Things and it and the Stand. Like for whatever reason, the bigger the Stephen King book, the more into it I was. But you know, when you're a kid, you have nothing but time, yeah. right? And this is this is pre internet. 
you know, so it's not like I, you know, I was either wasting time playing the two Nintendo games that I had or, <laughs> you know, or yeah. watching TV that I didn't have any control over. It was just what was on. So it was much easier to read then because like what I wanted to do, I couldn't, you know, just materialize in front of me at any given moment. So like I, I relish like those big books because it kind of you get to this point in, in, in the middle of the long ones where, you know, you're not sure if, if the fiction world is, is uh, impacting your world or not, because it's so goddamn long and every page that you turn doesn't seem like you're getting any closer to the end, you know? Oh, sure, yeah. And, and it just kind of feels like, like, did I slip into never ending story here? I think maybe I did. Maybe this yeah. is just my reality now. I, um, I can relate to that. Like I would, I kind of just would go to the library and get, book after book and a, a lot of Stephen King's books but the stand for some reason I guess I always thought it was like it's not horror or something like I it was sort of was like off the radar for me like I don't know what it was but like everything else seemed like okay this is horror and this is something I'll be into but the stand always seemed like something different I don't know well it is I I think you know I'm, I'm listening to Eric talk about all this about the the length of the books and I'm thinking well maybe it wasn't so much the length because I I, I read it around the same age mm-hmm. and I didn't have a problem with that but to your point, it is different. You know, it is more of a, I don't know. It's its more of like a prestige drama than something like It, which I think has a little more pulp in it. Yeah. You know, there's a fucking murder clown from yeah, space. You knew it was lives scary just from looking at the front of it. You were like, right. it's going to be terrifying. Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah. The stand starts off like an extended, it's about a plague. And now there's, you know, there's like army guys. And you're, I was just like, ah, all right, I get it. And I'll, I'll go mm-hmm. along with it. But the. I, I think at that age, I wanted something a little a little schlockier, you know, yeah. something with, uh, you know, monsters and creatures and fucking murder, interdimensional murder clowns in it. Uh, <laughs> although although the stand does have a, a connection, a pretty big connection to the title that we're talking about today. I'm struggling to think of what it is, but I'm sure you'll tell me. You want, uh, I will tell you right now. We'll kick off the Children of the Corn discussion with this. Uh, Gatlin is a neighboring town to Hemingford Home, which is where oh, that's uh, right. Oh, which okay. is where Mother Abigail lives and and brought uh, brought all the good people. So it's really kind of funny that she brings all the the good people to fight evil to the town that's right next to Malachi and the boys. <laughs> it wasn't it was mentioned in it too, right, Gatlin? Yeah, I think it's it mentioned in like three or four big King things. Cause it's whenever he gets out of Maine and he's just like, well, what do I know? Uh, I know Denver. <laughs> I know Boulder. <laughs> uh, oh, and yeah, let's go. Let's go to Gatlin. Let's go to Nebraska. <laughs> where we're with all the cornfields. Yeah. He loves a good sidewinder reference. Oh boy. He does. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, 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 I know it's popped up a few times, but I think that's the biggest one is that uh, Gatlin is, Caddy Corner, I think it's like next door to uh, Hemingford Home. No, you're right about that. And, and yeah. now that you're saying it, that uh, that rings a bell. Now, y- y'all chose Children of the Corn, and this is a this is a topic I know you've discussed on your own podcast. Um, I'm assuming, therefore, that it has some special meaning to you. Yes, it does to me. I I remember watching this movie when I was very young and I thought it was terrifying at the time, you know, like that whole, the, the power shift in the, the not, it wasn't the first scene, but like very early on in the movie where the kids are in the diner and they lock the door and they kill the adults. Like that yeah. was <laughs> such a different concept, you know, uh, for me watching, like it was, it was terrifying, you know, and, and it just stuck with me. And then the whole, the, the rural nature of it too, you know, being like, and it was during the day, it was in a cornfield. I grew up in the South, so it was very 
uh, relatable in that sense. And I find those places to be very scary. But at the time, a lot of people weren't writing horror in those areas. So I don't know. For some reason, it just uh, resonated with me. Yeah. And I think I kind of look at it as like a twisted Peter Pan. It's like, you know, Peter Pan through a nightmare kaleidoscope. And that was always such a like kind of like exciting aspect of the story to me. And plus, you know, personally, I think one of the scariest things that we that we experience as people is is the power of religion. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it it can be a powerful source for good. But I think unfortunately, for a lot of people, it's a really powerful source of like pain. So you know, you, you get a lot of that in the philosophy of the story. Like when they jam corn in your eyes, right? Yeah, when they like rip out your eyeballs and put corn silk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my, although that 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 diner scene gives me like the '80s moment of oh my, I, I just love it so much. When like for no reason they're like, yeah, put that guy's hand in the meat slicer. I'm like, yes. The meat slicer. That's the first thing I always think about from that scene too. Yeah. Oh, really? There's yeah. There's something so fucking gnarly about it. And I used to like when I was. I don't know, like 14 or something. I was like a bag boy in a grocery store back when like you had bag boys that would like take your, take your groceries out to your car for you. Um, And I'm really aging myself there. But there was, there was a dude that worked a deli counter there. And like, I was just fascinated by this like whirling death machine that he seemed to like be so nonchalant about. It just seemed like a thing that could eat your arms at any given minute. (laughs) It you know, <laughs> in the middle of this suburban grocery store. And I'm like, fuck, dude, I wouldn't yeah. be anywhere near that. I'm, I'm going to stay over here with the bags. But <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell know. you a grisly story. My father is actually a butcher and many people he's told me have lost fingers and stuff to those uh, mm-hmm. old contraptions. So they are pretty scary. But yeah. yeah. I was for a very brief period. I was a general manager for Jamba Juice. And we had and and the location that I was at at that particular time was a uh, uh, it was in a mall. Right. And there was uh, a machine in Jamba Juice that is is just there to like press oranges. Mm-hmm. And it has like two interlocking claws in the center of it. And you drop an orange into it. It rolls down into the middle of those two claws. The claws fold in on one another. Juice comes out. Very simple. If the front of this machine is open, then the machine will not turn on. That's like the fail safe. But also you've got to like make sure it's unplugged just in case. Anyway, very long story short, uh, this guy that worked at the location that I was I was like training for something at uh, was closing up the shop one night and managed to somehow he hadn't unplugged the machine. I think it is what it was. And the bottom half of the door was open. But he reached his hand into the claws and then mm-hmm. somehow kicked the fucking bottom of the door shut. And it just like were like word into motion and came down on his hand. And uh, when I heard about it, like there were some other employees on and I was like, so what happened at that point? And they were like, and one of the employees was just like gave this like 3000 yard Vietnam stare and was just like. You could oh. hear his screams through the whole mall. I was like, holy fucking wow. shit. Did it like totally crush his hand off or what happened? It didn't come off, but it Ooh. did a number on the hand. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> did it recuperate or was it like done? Well, it was mangled to a degree that they put a bunch of pins in it and had to set it and oh, like no. basically oh, wow. rebuild it. And so he was out like... I was only at that like location very briefly. Like I said, I was there to like train for some particular thing or another. And mm. uh, 
Sounds <clears throat> to me like you're trying to pass the buck on who's responsible for this. <laughs> hey, man, I didn't kick the fucking door oh, shut. That's all I, I'm saying. And I, I wouldn't have put my hands near those claws in the first place. Dude. I'm thinking now I'm wondering where Stephen King might have seen someone screaming in a butcher shop when he was like a young child or something. And you telling that story may be giving young writers that are listening to the <laughs> podcast their, you know, their meat slicer scene and their movie they're going to make in 20 years. Inspiring a whole new generation <laughs> of the Mangler movies. Yeah. Yes. Very do the 80s zoom up on someone reacting to it in horror as it's happening. A little blood splatter on their face. (laughs) Yeah. Hope that dude's doing okay. But uh, but anyhow, would one of y'all like to do the honors for anyone that has not who's listening to this who has not read Children of the Corn? Could would one of you like to lay out the basic synopsis of this story? Sure. Um so it's a short story. It comes from his collection of uh, short stories. I think his, Stephen King's first collection of stor- sh- short stories called Night Shift. And it's essentially about a married couple who are taking a road trip uh, across the Midwest. They kind of like their path kind of brings them to a really small town called Gatlin, uh, Nebraska, where they discover a town that has been essentially taken over by the children. And the whole thing is kind of driven by like this, this religious undertone and this new kind of vision of God that they refer to as as uh, he who walks behind the rose and, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they quickly discover that all the adults have been murdered and it, you know, it's, it's their kind of like, it's really clear. They're, they're kind of like spoiler alert. They're the story of their death and the sort of creation of that community of, of kids. I don't think they could have made it in the long term. You know, no, uh, yeah. they're not going to survive. <laughs> well, who knows, uh, right? Because there are some supernatural things happening. Yeah, there, so yeah. That's I started true. to think in the movie, like you know, the that there was almost like a vortex or something around the town. You know, because they keep trying to drive away and they keep coming back, and you're like, yeah, sure, someone's moving the signs, but then you're like, or are they? Or is it just you know? You could almost imagine it being almost like a, I don't know, like a magical dimension or something, right? They got some evil dead trees that are closing in around the cabin kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, hey, yeah. the yeah. corn was like grabbing uh, onto people. So that's true. <laughs> so, the corn moves. We, <laughs> yeah. We've established this within the canon. And Absolutely. Even, yeah, even yeah. in the book, you know, it like closed in, you know, and made yeah. a wall. So, yeah. We have yeah. a, we have, we've had a long running discussion on this show about Stephen King in relation to corn. <laughs> really? If, okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, yes. If your job, as as is our job, Eric Eric Vespi and I, is to <laughs> watch and read Stephen King stuff for a living, you tend to pick and, and like speed read and watch it because we got to do one of these fucking things every week. But <laughs> what we have picked up on is that corn, specifically corn on the cob, shows up over and over again in his work as in a in a totemic way, or maybe as a, a murder instrument. You know, you were talking about the the eyeball stab. Earlier. Yeah, it appears in Sleepwalkers. Uh, guy gets killed with a cop corn in Sleepwalkers. I don't uh, remember that, but I love that you mentioned Sleepwalkers because I was kind of revisiting Stephen King stuff like in preparation for this. And um, oh god, like Sleepwalkers was such kind of like a sleeper hit because for me, I loved the movie. It, but was. it was. Just, it was so weird and that soundtrack and just like some of the like the 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 innuendos of like incest and stuff. I don't know. For me, it's a favorite, but a lot of people don't really like it. Not really innuendos. They were pretty <laughs> upfront about that. <laughs> like Mick Garris and Stephen King <laughs> were like, well, here's what it's about. Uh, they're cat people. Mom and son. Also, they're fucking. And uh, they feed on the blood of virgins. Definitely incest. explicitly uh, yeah. incestual. Cat incest is the 
the forefront of sleepwalkers and of course murder corn so there's that's <laughs> alice krieg stabs a, a an officer of the law in the back with a, a cob of corn right it's and, like the uh, back third of the movie right and then like there's that whole thing in uh, secret garden with johnny depp like eating the the corn cob at the end after burying his wife underneath you know a bunch mm-hmm. of which isn't how it happens in the book, so I don't, I can't give credit to that one to Stephen King. But still, it's in a Stephen King adaptation. So yeah, that throws a wrinkle into our theory about Stephen King <laughs> and corn. But but uh, I'm going <laughs> to let it ride because uh, presumably he signed off on it at some point. But now that I've introduced this concept to y'all, do you have any idea or any theories on why Stephen King would be particularly drawn to corn cobs as either totems, murder weapons, or a thing worth wor- worshiping? I mean, I, you know, personally, who knows? But when I think about corn, <laughs> and when I think about corn and I think of the power and the, in the, the visuals of corn, it's very phallic. You know, there's very, there's, a, mm. it's very fertile. It's very phallic. Um, you can get, dr- you can make wine and, and drink from corn. You can get drunk on corn. Corn can be a weapon of death. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, now you've got me thinking that corn is, you know, corn is kind of a versatile, very powerful vegetable. <laughs> Well, I mean, too, it was like, right, it was like a huge part of people surviving or, or, you know, colonizers at least surviving in this country. They, If it wasn't for corn, you know, we all wouldn't be here right now. There's also that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, White but people I owe a lot to corn. I guess it's yeah. true, but there's also something like I don't know. Maybe it's kind of folk magicy or something, right? It kind of has that connotation to it too. I think one of our previous guests, uh, April Wolf, who wrote uh, the Black Christmas remake. She's she sort of cor- cornered the market, cornered, ha, 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 the market <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> on wow. uh, the the Children of the Corn series on this show. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the last one we did with her was uh, Urban Harvest, which is uh, something to see. We brought this up with her on her last appearance on the show, and sh- I think she pitched the idea that King, coming from a blue collar background or having grown up in in places where you know agriculture was the predominant um what would you say export or like the livelihood of most people in the area sure Uh, like location uh, that that probably made an impression on him as well as the fact that just seeing these endless fields that are are so dense that you could get lost in them is also kind of a creepy idea yeah i think she described corn cornfields as very as oppressive it's just oppressive when you see how how big and vast they are and how anything can be in there and they just surround you you know yeah. so especially if you put it that way I'm like, like they're that. scary they're like yeah. literally i don't know if you've ever been in the middle of a gigantic cornfield especially one like in somewhere like nebraska where there's just miles and miles of them but you can get lost in them very easy and it's you can have a panic attack. It's pretty terrifying, honestly. Like I've, we used to play hide and seek in cornfields when I was growing up and you could get lost very easily. Right. Did you ever get lost in a cornfield? I'm sure I did, but I mean, not, not for so long that it was like overnight or something, but long (laughs) enough, you start to feel panicky because you can't, you know, you keep going and you just, it's just the same thing over and over and over. And so I can kind of see where the fear comes into play there. Like as a hmm. child too, cause you know, you know, you can't see over the top. So there's no point of references. You don't know if you're, well, I'm just going to keep going in one direction, but you know, your orientation gets spun and you could just, you know, literally just like get lost forever. Sure. But even as an adult, I mean, if you're in these kind of cornfields that we're talking about, I mean, you can't see over them anyway. So. Right. Okay. To your point earlier about like, you know, colonization and stuff. There's something very American about corn and mm-hmm. 
and to Americana. me it calls to mind like it's almost like a like an apple pie kind of thing yeah it's just oh, yeah. americana corn and I, fed, I think corn there's fed, a what, cor, what do they say corn fed uh west uh, midwestern yeah or even like you know a corn fed guy you know like just yeah. early in america <laughs> yeah they say that yeah the they thing. do it's true <laughs> <laughs> there's that <laughs> In terms of the short story versus the movie, do you all have a preference? I mean, the short story is is legitimately terrifying. I think it's so creepy, and even to this day, it, it's a scary read. Like, I think the the short story is much better than the than the movie, in my opinion. Oh, a hundred percent. It's way more grim, and you get it right from the start too, because the the relationship of the married couple, right? In the movie, it's oh, honey, it's your birthday, and oh, we're so in love, and let's do, you know, let me give you this little engraved lighter that it's going to come back later and save the day when we blow up the devil and all that. But in the in the book, it's you know they can barely stand each other, and you can literally feel like kind of like the spite and just sort of like the rot in their relationship, and mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Just, that kind of goes all the way from the beginning to the end because the the happy ending that we get in the movie is just so i don't know like american filmmaking because like let's let's dumb it down and happy it up so we can sell movie tickets but the book the way it ends is like so much more grim and yeah uh, better just way better and those little kids too in the movie that they brought in to cute it up to like so annoying like uh yeah (laughs) and i know that like stephen king wrote a treatment for it and they the executives or whatever passed on it and brought in this other person to write it. And I'm like, God, I would have loved to see the, you know, what he had in mind for it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now s- something to that point, there's, there's a difference in setup between the movie and the, uh, uh, and the story and the story. We start with them in the car, correct. And we just, we are with them as they encounter this empty town for the first time, we don't get a backstory. We don't get all this. We discover it as the main characters do, which is way more unsettling than, you know, showing the audience, even though it is probably my favorite scene in the movie right up front is, is that, uh, that scene where you see the, the, the children killing the adults in yeah. the town. Yeah. Um, but it like totally takes away any mystery. It takes away like, uh, just that kind of, I don't know. It, it takes you out of um, uh, being in the protagonist's shoes, right? So you're not following them. You're ahead of where they are by the time they run over that poor throat cut uh, corn boy, you know? In the, in the mm, totally. Well, they kind of throw agree. it off right off the bat with the, and I forget his name, but the um, the kid that comes out of the church and starts narrating, it's like an immediate eye yeah. roll, you know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you, and I didn't even really kind of, cognizant i wasn't cognizant of that like where you see the ki- the children kind of killing all the adults and you already know so it's front loaded the, the mystery is taken away um you know this was made obviously during a time when we didn't have gps and we didn't have the internet right. and, and there were such things as like hey i'm gonna go on a road trip and there's like a, a an inherent danger of that kind of isolation like you could be right. in the middle of nowhere <clears throat> you know, i know drac and i both have done lots of like exploring in the woods and like camping and road trips when we were younger and you know there's a danger to that and not knowing what's around the corner and like all of that mystery just gets dispelled like right from the start. Hmm. Have y'all ever found yourselves in like a dicey situation? Yes. While <laughs> <laughs> Many times I would say. Oh, yeah. we, we had like, this one trip. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, well, no, you you got you you know where I was going with that. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. You know, this was just kind of like a scary moment. Like, cue the chills down your spine. Like, we were camping cross country, and this is years ago. And I think we were in like uh, Louisiana, maybe Louisiana Texas border, and we had stopped in some random place. And you know, we were just driving through the night. Like, we didn't have a care in the world. But there was like this sketchy roadside diner slash gas station, and we were you know went to the bathroom. And I love to read like the bathroom graffiti, like what everybody mm-hmm. writes on yeah. the walls and stuff. And they were, se- it was like selling a pair of human skin boots called like blah, blah, blah. And it- um, what? <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was like literally the first place we had seen in, I don't know, hours on either end. It was lit because we didn't go on the main roads. We were like, we would drive back on like dirt roads and everything. And there were, again, no GPS. We didn't have cell phones with us. We had a, a huge old like 80s map book and like another book that had like campgrounds. So you had to compare the two to figure out where you were going to go camp for the night, you know? And so we were, and we wanted to go on the back roads and kind of explore the back country. So yeah. And it, we found this place and, and literally I was like, we were both in the bathroom and I was like, this is not good. Cause when we walked in, there was like three people and they were like staring at us really weird. I was like, we could have died right there very easily (laughs) or turned into like a crazy action packed movie. Oh, totally. I I need more information on these boots though. You'll have to call the number to find out. Yeah. Do do you still have the gentleman's phone number? (laughs) Do not. But there was another time we camped in Louisiana and we sort of like, uh, set up our camp and everything. And we went into new Orleans to partake and party, uh, it, which we did. And when we came back, um, we pulled up and our Jeep's lights went over our, our campsite and it was completely covered in these like neutrina swamp rats. <laughs> it was <laughs> horrifying. I mean, everything, like, the the table, all of our, I mean, ev- the tent, everything was covered in them. What is yeah. a neutrino swamp I, rat? I don't know if we're saying that ne- neutrino or something like that, but like if you Google it, they have like these weird extensions off of their nose. They're like a giant swamp rat. And like, mm. I swear the thing just stood up on a rock and it might have well just went like, it raised its head and like, you <laughs> like it was just so <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a million. There was another time we like, we were in Alabama, which you don't want to be in the middle of nowhere in Alabama on the winter camping, believe me. But you know, there was no one around again, middle of nowhere kind of situation we pulled up and it, we were so tired we had to stay here because there was just nowhere else to go and we were like falling asleep so we go to make camp and we look over and there was like one other camper there and it was i mean it might as well have been like leatherface's trailer it was like this old rotten little trailer that looks like it had been there forever but there was a light on inside and we just we literally sat there all night long <laughs> staring like- at the door to me, we wouldn't go to sleep until the, the sun came up because I was like, I know the minute we go to sleep, that door is going to fly open and someone's going to come <laughs> charging out of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> could yeah. be wearing a, a pig head and some uh, human oh, skin. Oh, yeah. That's what it felt like, you know? But it, it was, was like, like, we were so dead tired, too. I was like, are you tired? Nah. Yeah. No, me neither. Like, maybe we'll stay up for a little while longer. Yeah. <laughs> the, the sun will be up soon. Yeah. yeah. And we kind of just like, it was like sad <laughs> without saying it, you know? That's, that's, this is way scarier than being alone, by the way. If you're in a deserted place and there's one, <laughs> number one, one O-N-E other person there or tent or whatever, that is way scarier than there being no tents or being a dozen people there. Oh, For yeah. sure. Yeah. And that, that kind of goes to talk about the, you know, these guys driving and 
being in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere with no phone and all that and during that time period it is it is terrifying or can be yeah i'm delighted to hear that y'all are campers (laughs) just like i well well y'all are y'all are Y'all are glamorous. When right. I when I see y'all, you're you're typically very well. You're always very very highly presentable. Yes. You know. Yeah. And I I have a I, I'm having a hard time imagining you roughing it. I guess as well. <laughs> so you gotta think like we always say we celebrate like drag, filth, horror, and glamour, right? And so most of the time right. we're glamorous now because you know it's sort of like. Uh, we're at a different stage in our career, I would say, but we were certainly <laughs> much more filthy back in the day, especially at clubs and stuff. We were always like throwing blood all over the audience and smashing things on stage and, you know, having mud wrestling. It was always really filthy and crazy and very heavy metal, you know, <laughs> a little more on the guar side of things. Is yeah, that absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you come to one of our, one of our stage shows, shows, even, even today, like you'll definitely see us like take our shoes off and let our hair down and like let the, <laughs> the body fluids fly. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a guar concert once where they shortly after princess Diana's death. And they <laughs> brought start. And they brought out a an effigy of Princess Diana and dismembered her on wow. stage wow. for everybody. And each time a, a limb got cut off, blood would shoot out and then piss would shoot out. And then they decapitated her at the end, which was the, uh. the finale. And uh, and I'm not kidding. When I, This was maybe two weeks after after she died. What were and, you, like uh, eight? No, no, no. It was uh oh, that was late nineties, right? Yeah, it was. It was. This this was um where was it? It was at uh Dragon Con in Atlanta where, oh, where they Dragon were performing. Con. Yeah. And and I remember and I had no idea who Guar was, by the way. I'm just like I think a friend was like, Hey, let's go let's go see him. We're here. It's like uh, they're they're great. They put on a great show, is what I remember he told me. My yeah. friend Jed. And we went and uh and he and certainly enough they did they put on a very memorable show, I'll say that. I think I still have like a shirt somewhere that's covered with the the fake Princess Die blood somewhere. Oh god. <laughs> that just I mean- flattered on the entire crowd. That sounds well, so disrespectful, but I love that kind of irreverence. Like that just it literally thrills me. To me, there's something kind of fabulous about like being all glammed up but covered in blood with like a big axe. It's very like Joan Crawford straight jacket <laughs> kind of. You know, I don't know. I love the, the imagery of that. And camping can be fancy too. I mean, think about like an old '50s movie. You know, you can right. picture people like sipping their tea by the fire. I don't know. Well, we also live crazy lives. So like nature and honestly being in nature is it's grounding. You know, it's very grounding. Yeah. It's good to get away from people and to go somewhere, um, hopefully where there's not one other person in a dirty trailer. <laughs> right. It, it's great to get away to get away to where there are human skin shoes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But that's where holes. a lot of our inspiration comes from, right? Because we like to it's do true. these things and kind of put yourself in these scary situations that it inspires you and gives you ideas. And, you know, yeah, I like I said, I grew up in a very rural area. My my father was a butcher, so I have all kinds of crazy memories to draw on that you know if you just look at it from the left it's it's sort of a horror movie you know given everything you've laid out here today i feel like there is room for a remake of children of the corn but it's about y'all on a road trip mm. <laughs> i love it Can you imagine? i do it's, love it's, it yeah it's y'all instead of peter horton and linda hamilton just wheeling into gatlin 
And no. and it's the Boulay brothers versus Children of the Corn. Mm. Yeah, the first thing we do is choke out Isaac, and we're like, you're doing it wrong. Get out of here. <laughs> and then we take over. <laughs> you're, you're not trying to save the day. You're just like, oh, if you're going to be evil, honey, let me. Let me <laughs> yeah, like she well, who walks, walks the behind, behind the corn. <laughs> How do you? How are the? Okay, so the the Boulay brothers arrive in Gatlin. All hell is broken loose. All the adults are gone. A bunch of borderline Amish lunatics are running the asylum. They're all like twelve. How are you handling this situation? Well, you blame them for everything, right? Because none of them are are adults, so they'll only be tried as minors. So just blame everything you do on them. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one. That is tough. You're already thinking ahead <laughs> to, to the, gotta, the actual authority showing up. Yeah. Yeah. You got to live in that, that house, you know, the abandoned house, but make yourself out. So we could quickly switch to look like the victim of them if you had to. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you can get your little torn <laughs> yourself up in the last on. minute. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, my God, like, the officer. <laughs> I'm so glad you got here just in time. They were just about to sacrifice us. <laughs> <laughs> they were calling me interloper over and over again. Uh, why does this placard here saying that you you two were hosting the event? No, they made that to fool you. <laughs> right. I guess I don't know because what was right? What was their point? Like ultimately, what's the value here of like uh, taking over the cornfield? I don't know. I mean, well, maybe... they're they're doing it in in service of he who walks behind the rose. Yeah, yes. to have like a good crop. But I'm like, I don't want a crop of corn, so I don't really know what, why we would take it over. I don't think they're I don't think they're honestly worried about the crop. I think they're just worried about power and also serving the, this, you know, demonic deity, this corn I, monster. I wonder because, you know, that at the beginning of the movie and now, honestly, we, you know, we know that there's a difference between the book and the movie. But there was something at the um, a plaque on the church that says something about a drought, a corn drought, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like they were trying to hint that like this you know, there, there's some corn drought and they're worshiping this thing so they can survive and grow corn or I don't know, like it kind of, there's some right. kind of implication there. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's all biblical, right? And, and half of the Bible stories are all about, you know, keeping crops or life, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that that's why you had all those fucking really arcane rules and, and, and shit back then, because it, all the Leviticus stuff that you, you know, hear brought out about don't eating, don't eat shellfish and don't eat pork and stuff, because that was all, it was all warnings because that all that shit was unsafe to eat mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. It wasn't because God hates shellfish or, or loves pigs or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's so much of that, that stuff is all tied in the crops and and because the crops thrive then then the then humanity thrives yeah it almost for me it, it made me think about the beginning of religions like a, as a concept as an abstract concept and like what does that do like with the power shift amongst the uh, amongst the practitioners like i'm the one who receives his message no i'm the one and now you're strung up and how quickly that can turn um mm. but and then it also made me think of this idea of like, well, wait, when we watch the movie or when we read the book, there are some supernatural things actually happening here. Like the corn is pristine. There is no, uh, there are no bugs. There's no rot. It, it, there's no smell. Like it's just, it's like a, uh, a a perfection of nature. Right. So you're like, wait, the more that they believe, does it actually bring, you know, what comes first, the God or the believers? And if the believers believe enough, then the power of that God starts to sort of manifest. And the all right. this, this is what's going on in my mind. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, there's a, there's certainly an undercurrent here uh, that's both deconstructing and uh, criticizing organized religion, which is something that goes through all of King's work. There's, mm-hmm. there's almost, there's almost <clears throat> no story. You know, I think Wampler, you and I were just talking about this over lunch the other day. There's almost no story in King's work with the exception of like desperation, I think where the religious person is the good guy. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's always the unbeliever that's, you know, the hero, yeah. or if there's a Christian in the book, it is somebody who is going to fuck you over. It's oh, going yeah. to be the worst thing. It's going to be Miss Carmody in the mist, or it's going to be, um, you know, the, the priest that'll fail you in Salem's lot. Or it'll be the, the preacher at the, the, uh, forefront of revival, you know, that yeah. he's going to lose his mind. Like it's, or he's silver bullet, you know, and. A cycle of the werewolf. It's the you know it's the werewolf preacher's the bad yeah. guy. You know it's like Carrie White's Carrie White's mother because Carrie I just, White's yeah. mom. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the scariest the to me. One. So scary. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, I'm surprised. I I thought y'all were gonna pick Carrie. I was oh, surprised really? by Children of the. I thought it was the yeah. obvious kind of choice. I don't know. No, I'm glad you picked this one because I would. Children of the Corn is such a weird fucking thing. Yeah. You know, you can talk about this movie endlessly, and there's there's no end to the little hallways you can explore on it but speaking uh, of the god and children of the corn like when i read the book the first time i was i was getting you know at the very end you start you know uh bert and his wife end up being strung up there and it's not spelled out for you but it's like you know they're i think hanging from the other adjacent to the other two skeletons which was like again the false preacher and then like the blue man like the cop so his wife's like eyeballs are ripped out her mouth is stuffed with corn he gets strung up they're like he's not a skeleton yet but he will be and then just before that scene though he experiences like he who walks behind the rose and it's supposed to be like some giant green thing with like glowing red eyes and i immediately thought of like a john deere tractor like to, to me i was thinking like some gigantic like threshing machine which could be kind of scary i mean you could it in a weird folk Americana way, like you almost could make a demon out of something like that. Right. Mm. It'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's like overseeing the corn, Yeah, you know, like the corn, like the corn is it's, it's well, it's other children. Maybe it's looking at it like, well, these are my children, but these are my kids. You know, <laughs> you know like that sort of thing. We and, are all the corn's children here. Yeah. But, <laughs> but if it was like a big thresher though, and a thresher does come into play on, on, uh, a couple of the children of the corn titles. There's an extra little little bonus layer of I don't know meaning to that. If if the god itself, if he who walks behind the rose is designed after a thing that is there to destroy corn, mm-hmm. but it's also like you know thriving on it. I I, I think that would be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's very much like kind of like like the kids. They obviously. Uh, procreate so you have to destroy some corn as you make some corn to keep the corn Mm -hmm. fresh like kind of like just the way you do with the children like you have to destroy some of them to keep the ones that are there sort of healthy and under control it's like almost like an analogy for the field itself well that that to me is the creepiest part of the story where there's like the 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 bible thing that they're reading or the the new bible the corn bible or whatever (laughs) where they they talk about uh you know it's like oh yeah so they they are now in the process of continuing this and this could go on for generations them hidden in this little teeny tiny town off the beaten path and nobody could be any the wiser yeah. you know because they're going to just keep having kids themselves and then killing off the their ranks as they get older and yeah and and it's to me that that's where the real culty vibe you know because there's the um you know kind of overboard um 
organized religious aspect of it. That's great. It's creepy. I recognize it. But then like the culty side of it, the like hardcore, oh shit, these people are going to be, you know, drinking Kool-Aid and, or, you know, wearing Nikes, you know, those, it's, oh, yeah. it, it gets into that territory and it starts getting like the next level of upsetting to me. Okay. So let's get down to brass tacks. Hmm. Which one is, which, which, uh, which of the corn boys is your favorite? Here are your options. Hmm. Isaac played by John Franklin. Mm-hmm. Malachi played iconically by Courtney Gaines, the redheaded wonder. <laughs> and Job played by Robbie Cogger. Um, mm. These are the major ones. Um, I don't know if Job really registers. Uh, Robbie doesn't even have a blue link on Wikipedia. So I, 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 I he's in uh, Monster but, Squad. He, that's where he? I know him from. Yeah, he's uh, he's the one that's the the friend of Sean. That's that uh, uh, that's in like the principals meeting with him. He, he, so oh. he's the like the least. You're kind of okay. the least interesting member because everybody else has their thing. Like Eugene has the the mummy in the closet and you right, know, right, Horace right, is right, his, right. you know, fat kid and you know stuff, and Rudy the cool kid, and Sean's the leader. So he's the other one. <laughs> he's, <laughs> the the other he's the Got second a- in command of the yeah. monster squad. I recently yeah, I did a, a Monster Squad rewatch again too. Wow, that was so much better when I was younger. <laughs> oh, really? I love Monster Squad. I still love it. I, I'll, I'll probably always love it. I am sitting not five feet from the actual screen use amulet from the Monster Squad. Wow, really? I, I ah. have it in my collection. Oh, that's cool. It's beautiful. Okay, so well, let's then let's narrow it down to Isaac Malachi. Mm. Um, who do you prefer in this movie? Can I throw a random? unexpected in there this is not a boy but the um i'm trying to remember her name is rachel right she was like the priestess kind of you remember she for some reason yes yeah 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 she stood out to me too as like memorable and kind of (laughs) hateable So did yeah, you know, something know, about I, her? I, I bet if I if I were watching, like if it were on right now, I'd be like, oh yeah, 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 I know who that is, but I can't conjure the image. She jumps up at the end. She's hiding in their car after they destroy everyone, and they think they've won. Oh, it's like the surprise. Yeah, you know, yeah, she's yeah, in the yeah, car. Yeah. He gets in and starts it, and she jumps up and tries to slit his throat from behind him. Yeah. yeah, okay. She's so she, leading a ritual too in the church, like when a, one of the boys is like turning nineteen or something, and they're like carving a pentagram in his chest, and she's got like a really bad, almost like little orphan Annie wig. She her hair is. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, her. <laughs> she I has this energy that like uh, Isaac has. That's like you know, it's like little kid that's kind of nasty and preachy. Like she has the same kind of energy. They're both hmm. kind of have hmm. that vibe. Yeah, but I guess if I had to pick that, I would say Isaac because. He's just kind of iconic, right? Of course, but I couldn't I couldn't stand her when I was young and I still can't stand her. So I'm gonna have to go with Malachi. Like the one who's <laughs> the one who's doing the dirty work, you know? Like, you know, he's he's like Malachi's he, the one that gets shit done for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She, he's like yeah. leading the troops and the and the little rebellion there too that was short lived. But he messed up, right? Because <laughs> that was the thing, as they said he said I think by him doing that and putting Isaac up to be sacrificed, he screwed the whole thing up. He did. Oh, yeah. No, he's a fuck up. They're all fuck ups. Yeah. With the kids. Well, that's the thing. Like, can you imagine? Like, okay, if you rolled into Gatlin and you (laughs) find yourself facing down the children of the corn, like, would you honestly be scared or would you be like, (laughs) oh, come on, guys. What is this? Okay, like, it, it's the numbers, right? It, yeah. It's the numbers. Mm-hmm. It's like when he's when the birth's in the church, and there's like you're like, okay, I'm gonna grab these little kids by the arm and literally just like slam them on the wall. But then, there, 
but then there's like 15 of them. You're like, well, actually, maybe not if they have like sickles and scythes and daggers. Yeah. And like, they could get me. And little kids are mean too. I'm like, no, I, w- I would definitely not like that. Pe- I guess that's have- fair. How many kids do you think you could take at once? <laughs> Are oh, we talking like, like they've got they've got one of them has a sickle. I'll tell you exactly what they got on. OK, OK. One of them has a sickle. Let's say there's maybe 10 of them. One ten. has a sickle. Uh, one has maybe a, a hammer. And then another one has, I, I don't know, a fucking torch or something. Otherwise, they're just clawing at you. And you like have how nothing. many of these kids do you think you could beat up before you were overcome? I'm going to say I would say all of them. They stand, <laughs> they, stand, they, they stand no chance. If you could get one of their weapons away, sure. But yeah. if you couldn't, I think you'd be screwed. Yeah. But well, how you, could you not get one of their weapons away? Yeah. I'll get know. a sickle off fucking Isaac. Malachi real quick. was big. He wasn't like, yeah. you know. I mean, I don't know. I think about being like 16 years old. Like, I could definitely fuck someone up, you know? He's <laughs> yeah. tall, but he's lanky. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like he's not he's not scrappy. And <laughs> if you got weight on him, you could just fucking pummel Malachi. It, it shows it shows that Scott doesn't have much experience with uh, kids here. Because <laughs> if you ever try to take something away from a ten year old that doesn't want to take it, my my nephews could like fucking work Houdini magic shit to keep me from grabbing <laughs> shit out of their fucking hand. So I don't know. I think uh, once again, uh, I know Scott's answer to this is he can beat up everything. Uh, everything small. <laughs> this, this is, this is becoming a running theme on the show where like uh, the little green army men from battlegrounds, not a problem for Scott. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a Chucky doll, not a problem for Scott. So Chucky anything doll that's is small, not a problem. He, that it's is not true. a problem. It's, cotton like i i we recently we, had this, we've we were talked on a, about this yeah right. we were on a documentary like behind the monsters where you talk about you know all the different iconic monsters and they're like what yeah. do you think of chucky i'm like chucky is not scary chucky is cotton like you could just rip him in half i don't understand you know you could punt him under the chin and you're done yeah no That's matter it. what he has That's he's true. just a plastic head with a cotton body like what is he gonna do but the same with the kids right it depends on what age you're talking about if it was the older kids that are about to be called they would be more difficult than like the really because yeah, they're just kids. people at that yeah. point yeah so it'd probably be like just to be fair it'd probably be a mix <laughs> of like at that point you know according when you're to child, yeah, children people. are not people i just exactly. want that on record that, that is true they, I, they are normal average size people that could like just you know like you getting a in a fight at a gas station you run into you know somebody that size um but to be fair i think you're saying that's going to be like the the mix it's in the story right so it'll be like there'll be one or two 14 15 16 year olds there'll be a few eight year olds there'll be you know a few in between yeah right so you're gonna have this like gamut of like if they were all eight year olds, you could probably just you know punt them across yeah, the room. Sure, behind, but a Whitman sampler of corn children. <laughs> I think of all shapes and sizes. I think you'd be all right, except for Malachi might give you a little a little well, trouble. That's why you don't go for Malachi first. You have to go for eight year old who's armed, disarm eight year old, and take him yes. out, and yes. then then go for the Malachi. And if you get lucky, then you could ha- have you know you could eliminate the big one and then be armed with a weapon in each hand so when you're mm. when you're dual wielding then we can really take some little kids to the ground okay. <laughs> right i think i can yeah. get through a, a strong percentage of them before i was overwhelmed they'll sneak up on you you know uh, that's kids, what I'm saying. Turn around legs. to face the bigger one. You know, the sneaky little one could like cut you. You know, your Achilles tendon or something. I don't yeah, know. Right? 
Right? Yeah, you can get Fred <laughs> Wind. You can get uh, Pet Sematary. Yeah, yeah. Creed. Yeah. If Isaac did his job right, he would be training them. He's like, "Look, you're little, so you have to go. Here's where the here's where you stab someone to really kill them. You know, like so. Who knows how, <laughs> like, how well they're trained? Like, call in the ankle biters. <laughs> <laughs> stab them in their artery in the leg. You never know. Yep. You know. Yeah, go for the kidneys. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's creepy. Can you imagine? <laughs> Little kids knowing exactly anyway. <laughs> yeah. Arteries are. Yeah. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. like that. Unless you're yeah. Doogie Hauser, you have no you have no justification <laughs> for, for that having that knowledge. I always go into these hypotheticals assuming that I'm not going to I'm gonna that if I go in assuming I'm going to win, I'm going to lose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I always have to respect my enemy. So I think that the um, both uh, Swan and Drac are kind of right on point is that you want to kind of disarm a a, a little pipsqueak first and hey you can like grab him by the ankles and swing him and the other kids i mean you could you could do you could there's a lot of moves you could do with uh you know with with the little ones and as long as you get get a weapon to to fight the more isaacs of them i think you're 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 in pretty good shape but like if you're talking about the numbers of like the whole the whole real whole the whole town is after you and not just like the the eight that are in a church then i think that you're really uh i think you're in trouble i think you you really are it's it's i mean f- people get killed by ants you know well, I mean? it's like 30 it's like them. yeah you're fine. yeah so it's like yeah i, I think that that at, at a certain point yeah the the, the overwhelming numbers are what's going to get you hmm do you think that uh i mean i i don't even know why i'm asking of course you know you're gonna you're gonna survive the the corn children but uh I would. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I would. It would depend on the numbers. You know, we're we're speaking right. hypothetically about like fighting ten children. You know, but if it's like mm-hmm. thirty kids, man, they're sneaky. I don't yeah. know about all that. I don't. I don't <laughs> think I could fight thirty children at once. Thirty they have traps children too. They could have traps. You don't know. That's you know? true. They yeah. know the town better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They're on but home look, ground. Dude. If they were all unarmed, what do you think? 30 unarmed children ranging in age from 6 to 16. What What is the question? How How quickly would I perish? No. Do you, <laughs> it, it, I'm trying to, to find the line. Like, uh, like it, it does them being armed. I think anything over the, the I think anything over 10 is a problem. Hmm. You know, now there's now there's some like some evasive maneuvers that need to be taken. Right. You know, in order to compartmentalize them. Maybe you get like eight of them in one room and then five in another or something like that. But hmm. like if we're just walking into a town square and there's like 30 fucking kids and a third of them have scythes like you're done for, dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I will say that I think if if I were confronted with that, like if I, I pulled up in a small town, got out of my car and 30 children surrounded me like. Heard you've been talking shit or whatever the fuck the children of the corn might say these days. Interloper. Yeah. Yes. Interloper. Uh, I think much to my detriment, I would laugh (laughs) at this. Like there would be no, there would be no stopping me from laughing at this, this situation that I'm in. And then I would quickly die. I, that's, that's sort of the twist here is I don't think that I would get to, I think I would be killed. (laughs) Before I could get into like <laughs> fight or flight mode, like, before you started taking it seriously, I, yeah, because I wouldn't be taking it seriously. But no. to that point, you also wouldn't have any compunction because I remember we had a conversation similar to this once, and I was like, I don't know, me as an adult, like I love kids, and like I don't know, it, it, 
I also love myself and, and uh, there will be a line that is crossed where I will defend myself, but like, I wouldn't gleefully take a, a baseball bat to that, you know, some eight year old kid who's trying to stab me. You know whoa, what I mean? Whoa, whoa. Why do you but, assume you get a baseball bat? Well, I'm just, you know, trying to come up with something that, that won't instantly get me canceled. Like, you know, like, oh, I'm going to hack this kid's head off or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think a little bit more bluntly, I guess. Um, mm, yeah, it's fair. So, but like, I, I think between the two of us in that situation, though, is Scott, if I have you pegged correctly, you see 30 corn children in front of you with sides and they're like throwing rocks and shit at you and they're clearly going to kill you and you're standing at, at the door to your car you would have zero compunction of getting into the car and mowing down those kids with your car. Oh, for sure. Are you kidding me? If they're throwing, I don't like this throwing rocks business. (laughs) I wouldn't like that. That's, you know, holding a scythe is different than like rocketing a fist sized stone at me or something. Right. You know, I would be very alarmed at that point. Yes. But I think in our initial discussions, I would at least be, you know, not be taking them seriously. Right. You wouldn't instantly jump to, I have to murder these children, but like that, no. once that line is crossed to where, Oh, these, these kids are trying to hurt me. Like then like all the gloves are off for you. Yeah. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And if you have a vehicle there, of course, that's your, that's your go-to. Yeah. That's what y'all should have done when you encountered those rats at the campsite. <laughs> you should unless just you, do unless you're worried about the, that main rat you were talking about, like denting the, <laughs> Denting the front of the car. <laughs> Definitely the star of the attack, the attack rat pack, because it was up on a rock. Like, I, I swear, like, it raised That's the Isaac of, of the rats. <laughs> totally. He has a little were, hat on. They were getting killed in the night, too. Like, we'd be sleeping once we got in the tent, and like, it was, you, you'd hear just like a scream, like an animal scream from the swamp. It was truly nightmarish. Oh. Now, have you? Have I, I guess my final question on on this is: uh, Have you all explored the the sequels at all? There there are nine of these fucking things. Yeah, nine. I think it's been a while. I do remember watching one or two of them, but um, I think I just kind of lost interest. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I haven't seen the sequels. I've only really stuck to the original because I read the book too. So I guess that's where my heart lies. But I haven't seen any of the other ones. I think without some kind of Stephen King connection, I'm not interested yeah uh i i I was the same way when we started this show and then you know uh we have to keep the episodes coming baby yeah you know what i'm talking about yeah so it was like well i gotta explore some of this other territory and what really pushed me over the edge was i saw like a a a gif on twitter from children of the corn 2 and it was uh the corn kids using a remote control like you would use for like an rc car piloting a, a a woman in a wheelchair through like at high velocity through the plate glass window in front of a bingo parlor. Buddy, wow. I'm going to tell you that is, that is not something you get to see in a movie every day. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, I got to check this out. <laughs> and you know what? I really like children of the corn too. Really? Like two, two and three are so much more entertaining than, than the first movie. Like oh, as we kind of discussed, the first movie is now kind of a bore. Um, yeah. You know, in, in with 2022 eyes, but, um, sure. but you cannot say the same thing about children of the corn two and, and three that that's for sure. And they, they are ridiculously fun. There's a, in children of the corn two, there's a, a lady that plays two different characters who are twin sisters, but it's the same, the same, same actress. Oh, I wow. love this yeah. kind of stuff. And one of the sisters is the one in the wheelchair. And uh, it, it is it is just filled with ridiculous shit like this. There's a house that's on stilts. 
that then they're they're, they're yes. like moving a house for some some reason and there's a horror sequence that happens underneath that's I mean, I wouldn't say they're it's scary, like a, but they're really fun. It's like a Wizard of Oz ass death where they drop the fucking house on the lid. Oh, I love that's it. true. <laughs> so if you would if you would uh, recommend two or three, which which one do you prefer? Two. Okay. Two two's a movie. Like two's a, a shitty movie, but it it was still made at a time when like this is like the end of the drive in era and the beginning of the direct to video era. So they still made the early direct to video movies like kind of of quality of like a drive in movie. So, you know, it was shot on film, film stock and all the stuff in three, which is Urban Harvest. It's it's ridiculous and silly and worth watching. But it's two's like still kind of feels like a real movie, despite how kind of shitty it is. Yeah. Oftentimes when we end up watching the sequels, because we too, you know, with with our podcast, Creatures of the Night, we we have to keep the content rolling, too. And just, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of educating yourself and like, OK, what are some off the beaten path horror movies or some sequels that you, you wouldn't necessarily watch the first time around? And it was this uh, when we were watching uh, like kind of like uh, Christmas horror and holiday horror. We got into mm. like some of the great ones, but we did a silent night, deadly night spree. And I discovered oh, wow. silent night, deadly night two, which oh, I, my know, God, I love it, oh, but it is literally the worst movie I've ever seen. Yes. Gar- garbage day. Yeah, <laughs> totally terrible. So now I, like I told Jack, I'm like, okay, Jack, look, if we're ever in, we're being interviewed or we're on someone else's <laughs> podcast, if they ever ask me what's the worst, my least favorite <laughs> horror movie, please remind me it's silent night, deadly night two. The corn children sequels have a little of that flavor. What's yeah. what's what's so compelling to me about two is that it has the the precise feel of a thing that I would have watched uh, late at night on HBO in like ninety two. There was a a type of filmmaking that was going on then that HBO was very attracted to because they programmed <laughs> quite a bit of it. That was just very cheesy and a little slick and just trash. And there's no getting around the fact that that's what Children of the Corn 2 is. But, oh, buddy, if you if you sit down in a room with some like-minded individuals, perhaps the uh, intoxicants of your choice, you're going to have a fucking blast with Children of the Corn 2. Three three transports the whole thing to the city. And the most notable thing about it is that um, Charlize Theron is in it. Really? In, oh. in her first role. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's sort of like just in the hot teenage extra in the in the background yeah. of like the, the final the final sequence. Yeah. Right, right. Three has its charms, but two, that's that's the one you want to go for. It is right. I would love to screen that movie sometime. <laughs> oh Isn't there one that Isaac comes back, right? It's like Children of the Corn six 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 or something. I saw oh, that. Oh, we haven't gotten that far yet. Oh yeah, he yeah, comes there, there back is one as an adult, yeah, yeah later on. Really? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Old man Isaac, huh? Yeah. Like Logan, the, only with yeah, Isaac. <laughs> like the actor went, I guess he like did a bunch of roles and roles that I was kind of surprised at. Like he was like cousin it and the Adams family and all this. Mm-hmm. But apparently he went and became a teacher for a while and then he came out of retirement and that's when they got him to do uh, this movie. But I haven't hmm. seen it. <laughs> well, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, I kind of actually like in a a little part of me kind of would love to get him on the show as a judge for like a daytime horror kind of thing. I think (laughs) it would be kind of fun. You just have to have all the 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 Dragula contestants like show up in like Amish gear. I'll just be like, you know, they could like recreate if you had to recreate like uh, what he who walks behind the rose, right? What would it look like? <laughs> they all come out like John yeah, Deere trackers. It, yes. I, don't know, I think you could come up with some neat looks with that theme. Hey, I, I'm totally down. 
Only if, yeah, only if Vespi and I get to be the other guest judge. <laughs> you can share one chair. Yeah. Yes. One of us will sit in the other one's lap. It'll be normal. Yeah. No one will think about it at all or question anything. We do kind of want at some point to try to get uh, Stephen King on as a judge and uh, because we have these really fun ideas for challenges. So who knows? Maybe one day it'll happen. Ooh. That would be incredible. Yeah. <laughs> there, we're planting um, that. Can you imagine? As a, as a means for transitioning to our, our final segment here about, you know, teasing whatever you got cut up, I do want to talk about Dracula for a second. Sure. I caught up with a big chunk of this yesterday, and I think this reality show is one of the most dramatic that I have seen. Uh, big personalities all being put in the same room together. They're all competing against one another. That's usually the case with reality shows. We all know that. But you you have monumental personalities in these rooms and the uh the shit talking flies fast and furious like have there ever been situations on this show where somebody had to step in to break something up where where it just got out of hand because it gets pretty ruthless in there absolutely i mean it kind of happened on season one um one of the challenges they had to do this like mud wrestling extermination challenge and they walk up to each other and you know they're like okay ring the bell start fighting and one of the competitors just straight up punches the other one in the face oh my god oh okay like this is happening yeah and and they literally started grappling and destroyed the set (laughs) It was crazy. So we kind of knew like from then we're like, okay, like we didn't think it would go there. It did. Um, And even here in season four, you know, there was a moment where it just was getting so heated that we, the product, you know, usually on reality shows, production is always encouraging drama and trying to get them to fight and stuff on our show. This last season, we had to stop them. We were like, this is too much. Like we need to pull back and sort of like reset them. And yeah, so crazy things happen. (laughs) I think I know the episode you're talking about. Uh, cause I was talking to Phil about it and he was like, yeah, there was almost a fist fight when I was there. I thought, I I thought I was going to see that shit before the day was over. It got real heated for any of our listeners who have not watched Dragula. This is high drama that we're talking about here. And, and I, I, I strongly recommend it even at their worst, the contestants, the designs are, the designs are incredible. One of the coolest things in the world to me is to see people who are operating within a niche of interest that is completely outside of my box that are just fucking killing it. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's just a cool thing to see. Like, like I'll, I, I could never do that. I, I had a blast going through uh, a bunch of it yesterday, and, and and I would recommend it to our our listeners who should have Shutter subscriptions by now. For the love of God! Oh, for sure, and thank you. Yeah, it's a uh, we love. Jack and I both have a real love for kind of like trash, aggressive, crazy, classic like reality television competition mm-hmm. shows. So we definitely don't shy away from like the interpersonal drama. But at base, it's kind of a celebration of, of a group of artists that do exist in like this really niche. It's sort of like a niche within a niche community. But at base, they're all amazing artists. There's perform, you know, performance is a piece of it. Tons of homage to horror. You know, it, it's sort of a love letter to all of the things that we, the two of us, love and kind of celebrate in our own life. And there's a lot of other people, a lot of other weirdos out there who like to celebrate it too. So season four is a great example of what the show can be. Absolutely, and I am one of those weirdos. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, do y'all have anything you want to plug while you're here? Like when are, when, are, when is season five coming along? Season five is coming, but it's not just season five. You know, the 
the show debuted this year on Shutter, and it was their most watched program. So there is a lot more to come beyond just season five that we're working on. Um, but we can't really get too into it right now, but that's a little bit of a tease for fans. Um, we're actually going on tour with the top four from season four. Um, we're heading out to the UK in like two weeks, and then we go through the UK, and then we come to the US, and then I think we're going to Australia too. So we'll be gone oh, wow, on tour nice. for a while. You going to be going camping while you're while you're no, in Australia? Definitely Absolutely not. No. not. No outback. No, <laughs> no, no ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Are y'all coming through Austin? Uh, there's I don't there's know, two actually. stops. I'm pretty familiar with the U.S. one because there's like 24 cities in the U.S. This is like the biggest tour we've done to date. Um, and Austin should be a stop because Austin mm. is so such a cool city. Yeah. We've been there many times, but on this tour, it's Dallas and Houston. So we will not mm. be stopping in Austin, but it's well worth the trip. Maybe we'll make a road trip, Vespi. But uh, thank you so much for being here. This was a, a delight, a pleasure to talk to y'all, and I, I hope you will come back. Maybe one, once we get around to Children of the Corn 666. <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank no, you no, for having us. It was fun to just come and talk about all things Stephen King. So, uh, you know, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate Absolutely. it. Many thanks to the Belay Brothers, Drak and Swan, for coming in. And going really long on uh, how many children we all think we could beat the shit out of, which uh, <laughs> I have to say, you know, having listened back to the episode, it that, that is absolutely a highlight and probably one of my favorite little <laughs> asides we've had in all of our coin boy discussions. Yeah, we're we're recording this outro before I've actually heard the uh, the show back. But that was my primary takeaway <laughs> while recording that one was the roundtable discussion on how many kids could you beat up. Um, if called upon <laughs> to do so, uh, sometimes, sometimes we'll do one of these shows and it's like, yeah, that seemed like it went really well. And then people will respond to something that we weren't expecting. And there's other times where it's like you do a show and you come out of the other side of it. Just like, holy shit, that was a hot fire. And, uh, <laughs> I felt like this was one of those kind of episodes, just a total barn burner. Love right. those Boulay brothers. Yeah, no, they, they, they came to play and, uh, it's it's just kind of inherent in talking about Children of the Corn. There's just so much to dig into with that story and with that movie and that series on the whole. So uh, we apologize for all the corn content you've been getting over the last year, but uh, uh, we can't promise that we're not going to be diving back in there. Uh, I mean, uh, we've honestly only done like two uh, Children of the Corn episodes in the main feed in the last year, right? That's true. That's true. I, I'm, I'm lumping in all the Patreon stuff, too, because we, we've hit hit it pretty uh, hard and heavy over at the Patreon as well with some commentaries and more corn discussions. You know, that's just that's how we do. Uh, maybe maybe that's it. That's the reason why we forgot to bring it up with Stephen King is because we've been just overindulging in the corn section just, you know, for us. I want to correct that record immediately. We did not forget. It was a <laughs> matter <true>. of time. <laughs> I, it was on it, our list. It was on our list. It, yeah. it was indeed. You know, we'll it, get it, him back. He's going to answer for his corn related <laughs> crimes yes. at some point. We'll get him. Now, can you imagine we get him again and then we don't bring it up a second time? Can you imagine? It's going to be literally the first fucking question out of my mouth. (laughs) I'm not joking. Like, there's no way I'm missing it this time. And also, I think that, you know, now that he's done the show, it's um, if we get him back, which is a big if. Who knows if that's going to happen? We'd certainly like it to, but um, you never know. But I felt like he was really comfortable. He had a good time. Yeah. I think he can roll with it if we hit him with the corn right out of the right out of the gate on the yes, next yeah. appearance. Yeah, he he knows what he's in for uh, if he agrees to come back for for sure, and we know he knows what he's in for, so that that's also a big deal. Yes. Um, speaking of knowing what you're in for, 
how mm. about that for a segue? Let's, Very good segue. Uh, let's talk about this Friday's Patreon bonus and next week's main feed episode. Which one do you want to start with? I'll take the bonus episode for this All right. Friday. Yeah, um, let's go. And uh, I, w- I want to talk about this for just a little bit of a minute because um, it's our next Shelbyville episode. Chapter three. Um, chapter yeah. three. The gang makes some new friends. This chapter is called. Uh, we are going to make uh, more than one new friend on on this particular episode. Mm-hmm. And there is a what will be for King Cast Diehards a mind shattering conclusion to this particular mm-hmm. episode mm-hmm. that you probably will not see coming. And it's going to lead into something even bigger in the fourth chapter, you know, which will be along in another month. We are having so much goddamn fun playing this game. We're fiending to get back to the game. Right. I was talking to Mallory yesterday and was just like, man, I'm fucking jonesing to just like play again, for God's sake. And she's like, yeah, me too. I really want to get back in there. If you have not tried it out, please check out on the Patreon our long running. Well, it's I don't know if it's long running it, yet. It's multiple months at this point. You can I can consider okay. that long running. Yeah. Our our long running uh original Stephen King RPG featuring myself, Eric, Ms. Mallory O'Meara, and game master Jacob Hall. Uh the game is getting bigger and more elaborate as it goes along. And um there's some wild shit going on in that show. Yeah. And uh it's very funny, lots of creativity <clears throat> going on. It's the you know, if, if you've never listened to an actual play show before, you know, it's pretty much us figuring out a story and and planning out a story and reacting to a story, you know, based on certain beats and building up characters and and because it's us and uh and Jacob is really good at what he does and in, in guiding us in the right direction, it's just an entertaining fun chaotic show it's chaotic yeah very chaotic foul mouthed kids fighting monsters in a small new england town what else could you want i'm really excited and i can't wait for everybody to hear the the next chapter we uh as insane as the haunted hotel one was last uh last time but it's it's ratcheted up like 10 times <laughs> in this episode things get crazy y'all and uh what's going on on the uh main feed next week Next week, I'm really excited about because we are attacking a title that's a personal favorite of mine that doesn't really get the love I think it deserves, and that is Joyland. Mm-hmm. So this is a hard case crime book that King wrote. It's a second, I believe, a hard case crime book that takes place in a New England amusement park, and there's some ghost shit in it, and it's like kind of the best of Stephen King, like just writing all the stuff that he's really good at writing. Uh, but it hasn't been adapted yet. There's the rights have been like sold two or three times at this point. And eventually it'll get made. But right now it's, it's one of those, it's kind of like, a um, under the radar King title and it is so good. Um, and our guest is a filmmaker, what else can we say about this guest? It's uh, it's been a while since we've had a, a female guest on the show, so so mm-hmm. it's about damn time that we've have a, a another female voice uh, coming in. So I can say she's a filmmaker who has worked in the horror space and really loves Joyland and was a really great. It's a really good episode, and uh, once again, it's covering something that doesn't really get a lot of airtime uh, and. Uh, when when King's work is being discussed, and so I'm I'm very excited for everybody to hear it. Yes, and people can stop asking us about doing a Joyland episode for, <laughs> yes. for a few months. Um, yeah. we, it's an oft requested title. Well, we finally got around to it, and it's a very good episode. So Hell congratulations yeah. to everyone, and to us, and, and to our guest. 
<laughs> Indeed. So, yep, we have chapter three of Shelbyville hitting the Patreon this Friday. Let me add one thing to that real quick. The bonus episode rollout schedule has been a little wonky uh, over the last couple of months. But uh, for those of you wondering about uh, this month's commentary, mm-hmm. that should be along the following Friday. And so I think we're off by about a week on that. But trust me, when you find out uh, who the guest is and what the title is, you're not going to care. You'll be <laughs> very happy. So yep. sit tight, folks. It's good. Yep, the next next uh, run of bonus apps are, are pretty good, and we we owe you guys a mailbag at a certain point here, uh, pretty soon. So we got lots of really good stuff coming up on the Patreon. So make sure you're signed up over there at Patreon.com/slash The Kingcast. And I really, really, really urge you to give the Shelbyville run a listen, and you're going to want to hear what we're up to um, once before uh, it gets spoiled for you. Before it gets um, spoiled for you, and. Um, and if you sign up now, you get all the back episodes, everything we've ever recorded on the Patreon, as long as you're in the right tier, you know, you'll have access to. And um, so make sure to do that. Six dollar and up is what you want. Indeed. Great. All right. So we'll see you all next week for Joyland and this Friday for Shelbyville Chapter 3. Adios, everyone. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>